All right, I already have seen a few eye rolls because I know some of you, and so you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta listen to this guy again. So I apologize for that. You can blame, uh, blame Caleb for that. But if I haven't met you yet, my name is Austin, and usually I get to hang out with our middle school and high school bunch. And so I hope that there's less squirreliness in this room, but uh, I guess nothing's guaranteed, especially with this guy in the front row right here. Right, Austin? So, uh, hey, we're going to dive into Isaiah chapters 9 through, or 7 through 9. Wow, I almost got off there from the very beginning. 7 through 9. And what I hear is that you guys have some really cool Bible slash notebooks, which are actually the same uh, width as my actual Bible. So that is next level. Um, So get those out. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. We'll be there in just a moment. But we're going to start off with a little bit of table talk discussion. So you can get to know the people around you. Maybe you already know them. That's great. But if, uh, if you do know them, maybe you don't know this about them. So I want you to answer this question. It should be up on the screen. Are you more of a big picture type person? Like you just want the grand idea. You don't, want, you don't really care about all the little details. Or do you care about all the details? Big picture or detail oriented. What do you, what, what are you? And what, what do you want to share with your friends about yourself? Big picture or detail-oriented? Ready? Go. Wow. Third category, a big detail-oriented picture guy. Okay, that's awesome. One more. And um, maybe I could just call on Jay and Jane because I'm sure you guys are not the same in this regard, right? Who's who in this, in this scenario? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Raise your hands. Who can take Jay home? Uh, uh, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Nick's like, I got you, buddy. I got you. Uh, so we're, we're, we're different people. And honestly, usually I'm like the detail-oriented guy. I get stuck in the weeds. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be talking to my wife, and, and she's like, yeah, we should do this. And I'm like, great. Yeah, let's, let's go on a trip, for example. I'm like, okay, great. Let's, let's get the hotel. Let's get our schedule. Ooh, yeah, we're, we're going to New York next week. And I'm like, oh, my God. Or not next week. Two weeks. I should know this in detail. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they have these Broadway shows and these restaurants. And she's like, whoa, I, like you're, you're 10 steps ahead of me. I'm just excited to go to New York. And so like we can have some tension sometimes when we're around people that might not view things the way we do. And it's different, Jay. It's not right or wrong. It's just a little different. And so um, tonight we're going to be looking at Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, which is a ton of coverage. And honestly, as I approach this, my tendency is to just be like super detailed and like, let's just walk through this and let's figure out exactly what this person is and, and where this place is and what this prophecy means and all that. But there's a lot there. And so I'm going to do something a little bit like not normal for me. I'm going to go big picture. I'm going to go a little bit big picture and draw out some bigger themes from this section of scripture. But I do want to give you a little bit of context. I know that you guys have been walking through this for a few weeks now, and, and Caleb even laid out some of the, like, the historical background of like what's going on, who is Isaiah, why, are these, why is he writing to these particular people. So I'll, I'll bring up to speed, we'll do a little bit of details, and then we'll go to the big picture so everyone's happy, right? We'll get both, we'll get both. So here's, the, here's a few details. The people of God are a divided nation. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Judah is the southern kingdom where Isaiah is the prophet. And up to this point, he has been pleading with them uh, over and over and over again to turn back to God, stop trusting in themselves, stop trusting in their political leaders, and turn back to God. But uh, they are afraid, and they are, uh, we'll see a little bit in even the scriptures tonight, that they are turning to 
uh, more powerful nations to save them. They're turning to Assyria. And, and so there's this guy named King Ahaz. You'll read about him uh, in the course of this, uh, these three chapters. And he is pretty desperate to save his own people, the people of Judah. And so he's, but he's like your typical politician. He's kind of playing both sides. He's, he's reverent on one end, and yet on the other side, he is, he's making a treaty with Assyria because he doesn't want to be overtaken by them. And so, so in these three chapters, uh, Isaiah is going to specifically call out not just the people of Israel or, or the people of Judah. He's not going to just call out individuals. He's going to actually talk about the political powers at play. He's going to call them to repent, to turn back, to not, to not trust in, uh, ultimately in another nation to save them, but to ultimately trust in God. So there's some details of where we're at. And we could honestly, we could go through here. There's a ton of stuff we could unpack. We could talk about names. We could talk about, I mean, if you just do a quick uh, look at the first couple of verses there's uh, uh, Ahaz, Jotham, Uzziah, Judah, Rezin, Pekah. Pika, Chu, uh, Pika, uh, Ramili. I mean, there's like all these names that we could probably, and someone much smarter than me, maybe, maybe Caleb should come back next week and actually do like verse by verse, because we're just not going to do that. I, I'm, not, I'm not that smart. I don't have that time. So instead of going verse by verse and all through all this stuff, we're going to pull out three themes of the God of Isaiah. So if you think back, you know, a few weeks ago, you got like the context of, 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 of this book. You got to learn the Isaiah of Isaiah. You got to learn the sins of Judah of Isaiah. And then tonight, we're going to look at the God of Isaiah. Who is this God that Isaiah keeps referring to? Who is this God that the people should turn to instead of turning to another nation? And so tonight, for the rest of our time, and I'm going to give you a, a few moments to, to talk with the people at your table, we're going to dive into three truths about this God. Three truths about the God of Isaiah. You guys with me so far? Okay. The first truth, and there's going, to be, there's going to be slides, there's going to be verses, you've got notes to take. The first truth is that this God speaks. The God of Isaiah is a God who speaks. You can see this all over in our passage tonight. It's found in Isaiah 7, verse 3, Isaiah 7, verse 10, chapter 8, verses 1, 5, and 11. And the interesting thing is, like, the God of Isaiah is actually no different than the God of any other book of the Bible. It's the same God. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. It's one of the very first things that we learn about God. He is an audible, speaking God. Genesis 1 begins with nothing, and then it says, The Lord said, and it was so. So the very first thing we learn in all of Scripture is that God speaks. And here again, God is speaking. And in these couple of chapters, he speaks a couple of very specific things. And he speaks to a couple of very specific people. He speaks to Isaiah. He, he literally tells Isaiah, here's what you need to tell the people. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to convey on my behalf. He also speaks to the king, King Ahaz. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He's speaking directly to these individuals. God is a God who speaks clearly, audibly, to Isaiah, to Ahaz, through Isaiah to Ahaz. He is not silent. The people, the people of Israel do not, uh, of Judah do not have to wonder what God wants or what God desires or what he's commanding them to do or, or who he is and what his characteristics are. He tells them very plainly, very clearly 
who he is and what he desires. This is uh, written about in scripture elsewhere. Look at Hebrews. uh, You don't have to turn there. uh, But Hebrews chapter one speaks of this truth. It says long ago. This is a New Testament book that basically is an Old Testament book because it has so many references in it. But it begins this way. It says long ago. God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets, one of which is Isaiah, at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What this verse assumes is that God is a God who speaks and has always spoken and will always speak. In fact, like the people of, of Judah are, they're disobedient, yes, to this God who speaks, but that is far less terrifying than a God who is absent or silent. Because actually, there is a period of time, 400 years in fact, when God doesn't say anything. And it's terrifying. At least they're hearing what he is saying. Now they're disobeying what he's saying. They're rebelling against what he's saying. I, I know that all too well because I'm a dad. But my kids hear me speak to them. And God is speaking to his people. And when he speaks to them, it's a couple different things. When God speaks to his people, he's revealing his character, his plan, and his promises, two of which we're going to see come to play in the rest of these verses. And it's interesting. God speaks, I mean, in in this book, he's primarily speaking to Isaiah and through Isaiah, but he speaks in a lot of other ways, right? Like, for some of you Bible students, or if you, you know, grew up in, in church and, and know a couple of stories, what are some other ways that God spoke to people? Other than a, other than a prophet named Isaiah. How else? Through a, donkey. Through a donkey, and he's still doing it right now on this stage. Say Say what? Through apples? Oh, I thought you said apples. I was like, well, they weren't supposed to eat the apples, but uh, the fruit. Yeah, tablets. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. A great storm. Hayden, did you have one? A burning bush. Over and over and in. A pillar of fire. Miracles. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says one of, the, one of the primary ways that he speaks to all people is just through creation. Sunsets. One of my favorite uh, stories is, uh, is a story found in 1 Kings 19. It's this guy named Elijah who's also a prophet. And he is running for his life. He is terrified of what might happen to him. And he finds himself in a, in a place where he didn't ever think he would be. He's on the side of a mountain, but like depressed, uh, worn out, stressed out. He actually tells God, he, he prays this, and, and maybe you can relate. He prays this prayer that says, God, just kill me. I'm ready to die. Like, this is too stressful. It's too much to go through. And, and God, being like a good parent, says, how about you have some food and how about you have a nap? You're being a little dramatic, Elijah. It's okay. And he wakes up from his nap, and, and he's, he's looking for something from God. And so God speaks to him and says, okay, go out, and, and I will show up. I will pass by. But the scripture says that 
a great wind came, and yet God was not in the wind. And then an earthquake came, and God was not in the earthquake. And then a great fire came, but God was not in the fire. And then came a still, small voice, and God was in the stillness. So God even shows up in the silence. God speaks through all of these ways, and he is still speaking today. So the first truth we come to in a book like this, and this goes beyond just these couple of chapters, but if we're talking about you know, a big picture idea of who is the God of Isaiah, the first thing we come to is he's a God who speaks, and he, a God, he is a God who is speaking. So a question at your tables for you to, to discuss is how is God speaking to you? Or, or maybe if, he, if, he ha, if, he's not, if it's not seeming like he's speaking right now, how, how has he spoken to you? Or how do you want him to speak to you? And maybe not even just like the vehicle of how, but like what do you want him to say? What are you desperate to hear from God about? So at your tables, go ahead and discuss. How does God speak to you? Ready? Go. And I think this is, you know, for me, this question just speaks to um, are we listening uh, for God? Are we making ourselves available for him to speak to us? And as I was reading this, this, uh, these couple of chapters, honestly, there was a lot of, you know, I was like, I have no idea what the heck I'm going to say about that. Who's that person? It's a lot of research. And then I was just struck by the, the few times that it said God said or God spoke. And even in the times when, you know, when he speaks to Ahaz and, and literally Ahaz is like, no, I'm, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to obey Far too often, am I even listening to God? And if I am listening to God, is my heart ready to obey and ready to receive? Or is it like Ahaz and it's like, I heard you, God, and I'm not going to do what you said. And so there's a convicting thought of like, just because God is speaking doesn't mean I'm necessarily listening or it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm obeying. And so there's a challenge for us that as we come to the God of Isaiah, he is a God who speaks to us. But are we available and are we going to respond with obedience. So, truth number one, God speaks. God is a God who speaks. The God of Isaiah is a God who speaks. Truth number two, the God of Isaiah is a God who is with us. A God who is with us. This can be found in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. I'll read it for us. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now, some of you, especially when I read this, honestly, I was like, oh, yeah, this is an Isaiah. That's amazing. Because when I read this, I thought, no, I thought this, this was later in the story. Like, we, we just read this verse at Christmas like a month ago. And so some of you, if, if you, uh, you know, have grown up reading the Bible or at least reading the, the Christmas story, perhaps what came to your mind was this verse in Matthew chapter 1, these couple of verses. I'll, I'll read from verse 18 to 23. Maybe this came to mind. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Pause. Spoken, right? God is a God who speaks. All this took place. Matthew chapter 1 is taking place because of something that was spoken by God through the prophet. The prophet's name was? Okay, okay, good. Okay, I was like, wait, we're, we're way off here now. Okay. Verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. That's Isaiah 7:14 in Matthew chapter 1. The prophecy back in Isaiah 7:14 is talking about Jesus. Now, I don't know if, if Isaiah fully knew that. I don't know if if the people, when they heard this, if, if King Ahaz, when he heard this, if they fully knew what that was to be. But when we come to a verse like Isaiah 7, 14, and then we see it again in Scripture attaching itself to Jesus, man, not only is, is God a speaking God, but he speaks about events that we don't even fully understand or could fully conceive of or can fully realize. This was written about 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And yet the God who speaks declares, I am coming to be with you. My name is Emmanuel. I will be born of a virgin and you will name me Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who speaks is also the God who comes to be with us. And, and this is amazing because sometimes when we hear the, the, the idea that God speaks, that can also feel like God is just out there somewhere telling us what to do, telling us how to act, telling us who to be, telling us what to do, what to not do. But the fact that God is a God who speaks and he is with us tells us that he's not talking to us from far away. He's coming really close to be with us. He's coming near. He's Emmanuel. He's coming to be close to us, not to speak at us from a distance, but to be close to us. And I love the location of where this prophecy comes up because it kind of hits you like, like I, I, I was reading this and I was like, oh my gosh, in the middle of this, like all this disobedience, in the middle of all this, uh, Isaiah is like not, his message is not getting through. The people are resistant. The people are rebellious. In the middle of all of this, there's this like little glimmer of hope that God still, despite the people, he still wants to be with us. Despite the people turning away from God, despite their worship, as we looked at in week one, despite their worship being false, despite all of the sins that Jay talked about, uh, despite their idolatry, despite them trusting in all the wrong things and in the wrong people, despite them looking for salvation in every other place but God, God promises to them, I will be with you. That's amazing. I am with you. In the midst of your disobedience, I'm with you. In the midst of your unrepentant heart, I'm still with you. Or your half-hearted intentions. This, this prophecy is spoken to Ahaz, who's he's a politician. He's playing both sides. He's kind of double-minded and half-hearted and Everything, every evil thing you could think of uh, of a politician, King Ahaz was it. And yet he says, I am still the God who is with you. God is close. He is near. 
He desires to be with and among his people. So the question for you guys to discuss at your tables is, is there a time? Because, you know, this, this was written um, 700 years before Jesus. That, that's been 2,000 plus years ago. And yet God does not change. He is still with us. He still desires to be present with us. He still desires to be close to us. And so when was a time that you felt like God was close to you? And if you didn't feel close, it wasn't because God left. It was because maybe you weren't paying attention or maybe you, you decided to leave. But was there a time when you felt close to God? Maybe there was a time when you felt really distant from God or you felt like God had abandoned you or, or left you. And then get a little bit more personal, like where do you feel like you are with God right now? Like if you were to, if you were to map it out, are you really close? We're talking all the time. Or are you kind of like that phone contact that you're like, oh, I forgot I had their number. Should I delete or should I message them? So at your table, spend, spend a few minutes. When's the time you felt close to God? When's the time you did not feel close to God? And where are you at right now? Because God is with you. He desires to be with you. But do you recognize his closeness? All right, go ahead. Spend, a, spend some time at your tables talking. And was it, was it after the fact that you kind of realized, oh, he was there all along, even though it didn't feel like it in the moment, right? Yeah. That's, that, I mean, that's usually how it is. It's like God does not leave. Uh, God is with us. But are we cognizant of it? Are we aware of it? Do we even want him to be with us? Because it, it, that's going to require a little bit different challenge maybe because we're, we, we can't run from him. We can't uh, do our own thing. If he's with us, there's, there's a little bit of accountability there even. Um, but the truth is, God is with you. God, God was with Judah, even in their disobedience. God was with Mary and Joseph physically, right? And, and God is with us. He is a God who speaks. He is a God who is with us. And thirdly, the third truth we're going to talk about tonight is God is to be feared. That took a little bit of a right turn, didn't it? You're like, wow, these are really nice things. God speaks to me. God is with me. God is to be feared. What the heck? And that, that, that feels like Isaiah, actually. Isaiah, you're kind of like driving along and you're like, whoa, left turn out of nowhere. Like, hit me with that, okay? And so this kind of comes out of nowhere in the text even. Because we read about this in uh, Isaiah 8, verse 13. In fact, I'm going to read um, 11 through 13 just to give us a little bit more context says this, this is what the Lord said, there it is again, to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people, the, the people of Judah. So this is Isaiah saying, God spoke directly to me with great power. I love how he adds that. Like this wasn't like God could ever speak to us without power. But, you know, it's like this emphasis of like, this is terrifying news what he's about to share. God spoke to me with great power to keep me from going the way of Judah. And he says this, God says, do not call everything a conspiracy these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. The interesting thing is like fear is not the issue here. The, the people of Judah are terrified and fearful and running for their, you know, like out of their minds. So like they don't have a problem fearing. They have a problem of the object of their fear. Their fear is 
other nations defeating them. Their fear is Assyria coming to overtake them. Their fear is anything other than what it should be, which is God. See, for God, fear is not the issue. He's saying, like, it's okay that you're afraid. It's okay that you're terrified. But you're afraid of things that are far less powerful than I am. I am a God who speaks. I am the God who is with you. I am a God who comes in power. And you, only I, should be feared. Only I should be held in awe. They're afraid. It says that they even have conspiracy theories to back up their fear. Thank goodness we, we, we don't have to deal with any of that uh, in our day and age. Um, you know, we moved, we're, we're so much more evolved now in 2023, no more conspiracy theories, right? No? And, you know, it's interesting, as I was reading this, I came across the, the King James Version, which I don't normally read. I, I, I find it a little clunky and, and hard to understand. But I love the, 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 phrase, the paraphrase of the King James Version of verse 13. It says this, it should be on the screen too. So verse 13 in the CSB, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy, only he should be feared and only he should be held in all. This is how the King James says it. It says, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Oof. The word fear, the, the word, this uh, word fear in, in the King James, it means reverence, terror, actually. The word dread means to tremble, to regard with awe, to treat something as awful. Have you ever thought of those terms in the context of who God is? God is saying, stop being terrified of these lesser things. Be afraid of me. It's almost like, you know, like, like uh, when you're crying and your dad's like, oh, well, you cry. You, I'll give you something to cry about, right? Anyone, anyone ever heard that before? I, Brandon, yeah. On your way here? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where are you going, son? Church. Um, it's almost like God's saying, like, oh, you're afraid? I'll give you something to be terrified of. It's me. It's my holiness. It's my glory. It is my uh, awesomeness. Be fearful, not of these other things. Be afraid of me. But this is kind of like, how? wait, why do I want to be afraid of someone that wants to be with me that is also supposed to be a good God, a, a gracious God, a merciful God. H how am I supposed to fear him as well? This is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like hard to wrap your mind around, right? At least it is for me. Like, I don't know how often you think of the attributes of God, but like fear or how I'm supposed to respond to God. I, I usually think, okay, God wants me to worship him. God wants me to uh, read his word. God wants me to pray to him. God wants me to fear him? Like, I, that usually doesn't make the list. And yet, in a real sense, if I am submitting my life to God fully, he is the only thing that I should fear. There should be nothing else that has my attention enough to make me afraid. So for the people of Israel, it was an, another nation, or it was their future, or it was how they were just going to survive. But for you, maybe it's something a little bit different. And you don't have to answer this at your table. This is not going to be on the screen. But what fear is above God right now in your life? Or maybe a different way to ask it is like, what's the thing that has your attention a little bit more than God does? And it's causing, it's causing some anxiety. It's causing some um, trembling. It's causing some some weightiness to your soul, God says, only I should be in that place. 
Because when you fear God, that's actually a really safe place to be. He's, because he's good, because he's merciful, because he's gracious. You come to this place of fearing God, and he says, you're free. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You don't, you don't have to prove yourself. This, actually, this whole idea of fearing God is found all over Scripture. Proverbs 1 speaks of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Fearing anything else leads to death, but the fear of the Lord leads to life. Even Jesus himself says this in Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him, namely God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I love what uh, Oswald Chambers, I think Jay mentioned him uh, a few weeks ago. I love what he says. It says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you don't fear anything else. But if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Or I also love my boy Lecrae. You guys know Lecrae? Yeah. He said, he's, this is good. We fear circumstances so much because we fear God so little. What has your attention that's causing trembling and fear and anxiousness and whatever it might be other than God. He says, only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Only God himself should be your fear. Only God himself should be your dread. So, you know, as we think about, like, okay, who God is, how does he want us to respond to him, when we read a passage like this of like, we should fear the Lord, the reason that we should fear the Lord is because he is other than us. We actually looked at it last week in Isaiah chapter 6. He is holy and glorious and perfect. And when we come into contact with a God who not only speaks to us, but comes close to us, and we realize we are so other than that, God is holy and perfect and sinless and righteous and all those things, and we are the opposite. We are imperfect. We are unholy. We are sinful. And so we come in, when we come into the presence of that, of course, our only real response is to be afraid. Like Isaiah even is afraid. He, he is distraught. He does not know what to do with himself in Isaiah 6 because he is, he is a man of unclean lips. He is unholy. He is imperfect. And yet that is the place that God wants us to, to bring us that's where we find freedom. That's where we find that, yes, we are all those things of, of imperfection and, and unholiness, and yet God's saying, I still want to be with you, and I will forgive your imperfection. I'll cover your sins and your unrighteousness. There you go. You know, later in chapter 9 of Isaiah, God is also referenced as, as someone who is angry. Uh, chapter 9, verse 17, and chapter 9, verse 21, it says, His anger, speaking of God, has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. It's, it's, again, it's this image of like, man, God is to be feared. God is angry. Um, how, how do I interact with this God? And at the same time, it is the safest place for us to be. And it's beautiful. Because God, even in his anger, even in his wrath, even in his, his otherness, he desires to speak to us, to be with us, to forgive us, to extend compassion and grace and patience with us. When we fear God, 
We have nothing else to fear. So at your tables, answer this question. When you think of God, is fear one of your primary reactions? Are you, are you coming to this place of like utter surrender? I can't do anything because this God is so holy and perfect and I'm actually terrified of how beautiful and glorious he is. And if not, that's okay. But why, why if it's not, like why is that such a, maybe a difficult thing for us to think about God? A difficult truth to unpack. You know, God speaking to us, I can get around that. God coming to be with us, I love that. Love Christmas, love that Jesus came. But God being one to be feared, that's really difficult to wrap my head around. So where are you at with this? Is this a way that you typically think of responding to God? And if not, that's okay. But why? Why is that so difficult for, for you to, to understand that, that he's, he is the one to be feared? He is the one to be held in all. He is the one to be dreaded above anything else. So at your tables, answer those couple of questions and, and be honest and be vulnerable and, and, and share where you're at in the journey. All right, let's bring it back. I won't have you guys... Uh, guys share, but I, I trust that you guys had some good conversation around that. Hey, there's uh, two bonus truths I'm going to give you. I'm not going to go into these, but uh, two others is uh, one, God is powerful. This is all over chapter 8, especially in a couple in, in uh, chapter 9, but over and over he is referred to as the Lord of Armies, uh, which that's a, a beautiful picture of his power. And then another one, uh, there's actually two in this one that uh, there's a, a section in eight, chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, that God is a sanctuary to some and yet a stumbling block to others, which also the New Testament speaks about. That, that God is a safe haven for those who trust in him, and yet for others he is a, a tripping hazard. He, he's a stumbling block to those who would, would not submit themselves to him. Uh, but before, we, uh, before I wrap up, there's a, a beautiful... Um, the whole way that this, this chapter, uh, this section ends, it's actually really beautiful. It's like, you know, in Isaiah 7, there's this beautiful uh, picture of hope, of a coming Emmanuel, a God being with us. And then uh, chapter 9, he ends this section with another beautiful promise of what's to come. And it's, it's in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And I'll read it for us, and then just draw a couple of uh, parallels, and then I'm going to pray and we'll worship. But it says this, this is a, another prophecy from the book of Isaiah. It says, A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. This also is speaking of Jesus, that a child will be born for us. He will be born a baby. A son will be given to us. The, he's a child, a human, and yet also a son, God, fully human, fully man. And he will rule and reign, ushering in a new kingdom unlike the governments that we experience right now. And this is interesting because it's, he's speaking to a very corrupt uh, political system at this time. In fact, he's speaking to a divided kingdom with all sorts of political tension, a corrupt government, corrupt leadership that are half-hearted, double-minded, dishonest. Thankfully, it was just back then, not today. And, and in the middle of that context, he says this, this piece of amazing hope that one day there will be one who will come to be for us and the, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And, and as I was researching this, I found this to be uh, very helpful. For, uh, it's, it's from John MacArthur. There should be a, a slide up here. And, and so as, as you think about, like, what, what kind of kingdom and government is, is this new king going to usher in? 
It's going to be completely different from anything we experience in this life. There's going to be no confusion because he will be the wonderful counselor. No confusion. There's going to be no chaos. Does your life feel like chaotic at times? Does, does the world around you feel chaotic? There's going to be no chaos because he's the mighty God. There's going to be no complexity because he is the eternal father. He has always existed, will always exist, and will oversee everything. No, no complexity. It's simple. He is in charge. And there's no conflicts. He is the prince of peace. And so Isaiah closes out this section of, of the book, pointing us to a, a future hope. I think too often we get, we get stuck in the, the you know, looking down or, or just looking at our, our one day or one problem at a time. And yet, what if we just got our eyes up a little bit and, and looked ahead to the future? That's, a, that's exactly what Isaiah does. It says, there is coming a day, there's coming a king when it won't look like your governments, when it won't look like the, and, and it's easy to point the finger at the government, but like, you're in charge of your own life. How is your own life going? Is it complex and chaotic and, and confusing? Is there conflict even within you? Jesus will resolve all of that because he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. So even in your own little kingdoms that you set up, Jesus will reign and rule over that. Not just over America, not just over this world, but even over our hearts. And one day he is coming and he's established this and his kingdom will come in full one day. So I'm going to pray for us. And um, we're going to close our, our time with one more song. All right, let's pray together. Father God, you, you are the promised one. You sent your son Jesus to be among us, to, to be with us, to, to not just be, um, not just to fulfill all these amazing prophecies. Yes, that was the case, but God, to rule and reign in our hearts. God, it's an open invitation for each one of us to, um, as we read Isaiah, to, it's so easy to just point the finger and, and look at how they got it wrong and, and how silly they were for not listening. And, and yet, God, when we come to Scripture, it's, a, a, it's an evaluation. That we should be putting a mirror up to ourselves and say, yeah, how do I do the same? How do I, how do I perhaps not... Um, not obey like I should, maybe not listen like I should, maybe not make myself available like I should, not fear you like I should, not walk with you like you want to. And so God, um, I, I hope and pray that tonight has been a, a, just a pause of reflection on, on not how the people back then got it wrong, but on how um, we can get it wrong and yet you offer us grace, you offer us forgiveness, you offer us another chance to, to get it right, to walk with you, to listen to you, and to fear you above everything else. So guys, we close in, in, in a song. Would you, would you just remind us that you're with us, that you care for us, that you came to us as Jesus, that you died for us, that you rose again for us, that all of this you have done on our behalf. You're a good God. May we praise you as such. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.